0: Okay, so let's stand and read Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where your deeds dwell, or sorry, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth." He who was in the ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give this uh, some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Please be seated. Well, as you can tell by our reading this morning, uh, we're back once again in the seven churches, and. Today we're looking at the third church that Jesus addresses, the church of Pergamum. And as per usual, I'm going to follow the same outline as every week. And the outline will be as follows. We're going to look at the church in the city, the correspondent, Jesus' words of commendation, the concern, his command, and the call to conquer. So Pergamum uh, was... You can see on the map here is the farthest northern city on this map of the seven churches, 160 kilometers or so from here, basically here to Red Deer, away from Ephesus, and there's about 25 kilometers inland. So it's different than the other two cities in that it's not a port city. It's, it's, it's on the inland. Now, what's cool is that city still exists today, and it's called Bergama. It's got 102,000 people in it as an approximation, and this is what it looks like. Uh, well, I'm going to show you another picture of this but this is at the top of the of the the hill the cone-shaped hill in Pergamum looking down uh, where the ancient city was looking down on where the modern city is today so it's a it's a beautiful view from up there but unfortunately uh, like the city of Smyrna um, there's no biblical information given to us about the city in itself and even um, its origins in terms of the church all we know is the same verse we use every week from Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. It says that in Ephesus, there was a school of Tyrannus, and that out of that school, the word of God kept spreading through Asia. So we assume then that Pergamum was planted as a church by those who were trained at the school of Ephesus by Paul. Now, the best I can do, therefore, is to give you outside biblical sources, and I I don't always like doing that because you never know how trustworthy they can be but I read at least six commentaries on this, and they're virtually all unanimous. So wherever they're gaining their sources, they're the scholars that do the work. So you can do with this, with this information what you like. But archaeology does prove, I, I mean, a huge amount of what I'm going to say to you. So what we know about Pergamum was it was unique in the other seven cities in Asia in that it was the Asia, Asia's capital. So um, it had been for a long time, even before Christ was born. Now it boasted uh, the second biggest library apparently in the world next to Alexandria in Egypt and had a giant amphitheater that could sit 10,000 people. Now this is undeniable because there's archaeological evidence of this. (laughs) This is a cool, imagine going as a tourist to see this. This is on the side of the hill and that's the amphitheater that would have had like plays and all sorts of cool stuff to listen to. So anyway, it was was obviously a city of culture and learning if it had a library uh second the biggest in that world and this giant amphitheater but unfortunately like smyrna before it and ephesus uh this city uh, was full of idolatry was steeped in idolatry and of uh, the archaeological remains today actually show temples dedicated to two gods in particular we have zeus this is the uh, moorings of some of the altars of zeus up there that's uh Obviously, that's at the top of the hill looking down on the city. That's Bergama today. But we can see some of the archaeological remains. And there's a massive altar dedicated to Zeus there. And according to one of my commentators, Bruce Metzger, he said, animal sacrifices burned 24 hours a day so that a column of smoke could be constantly seen from miles around. Now, below the amphitheater was uh, this um, this, um Actually, that's a picture of uh, the altar of Zeus and the Temple of Zeus using the colonnades at the top and reconstructing it. And so that's in Germany. You can go visit it. That's not life-size, I believe. It's just a a good example of what it would have looked like. Um, Down below was a, a temple dedicated to Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing in that culture. And so these are some of the ruins. But interestingly enough, The snake was the symbol of the god of healing, Asclepius. And we can see snakes on this uh, column here as part of the archaeological evidence of, of that temple being there. Now, what would happen is if you were sick, you would go to that temple and lay in the floor and in the healing centers, and snakes that were not poisonous would crawl over you in essence to bring healing to your body. And that was part of the temporal worship. Now, isn't it interesting? I just thought of this, like, What is the symbol today for the medical profession on the ambulance? A snake, right? Very fascinating that we haven't moved too far in 2,000 years in terms of how we view uh, that. Anyhow, just do with that what you like, but can't deny it's on the ambulance today. So anyhow, so the god of Asclepius, the god of Zeus. there's one other key thing. Remember we spoke about uh, Smyrna being a neoceros, meaning a temple warden. Remember what that means. You were given the special privilege by Rome to build an em- a temple to the emperor. Well, in in John's day, uh, these guys were the first ones to ever receive the title of neoceros. So them and Smyrna had that title, but they were first. They were 50 years ahead of Smyrna in that. And so they were the first ones to... Uh, really take emperor worship to a new level, and and really uh, advocate the imperial cult of Rome. So when we look at all this together, then, we can see that uh, uh, this is why in verse 13, he can say this to the Pergamon Christians, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he later on, he says, where Satan dwells. So we've got sort of like Cities steeped in idolatry, but Pergamum is the chief city where Jesus himself says Satan's home is actually there and the throne's a picture of kingship. So Satan's king in your town. And so when you look at the, the temples of Zeus and Asclepius and all these things, the archaeological remains don't lie. <laughs> they tell you what was there and what was going on. And so this is the kind of environment that Christians live in. And so being a follower of Christ in that environment would be extremely trying Number one, because the persecution, if you didn't worship the emperor. Number two, the temptations to succumb to the culture. The temptations to succumb to the culture when everywhere around you is just temple after temple of just worshiping these false gods and all the immorality that went along with it. So then Jesus writes them as the correspondent in verse 8, or actually verse 8, in verse uh, 12. He says, the one who has the sharp, edge, sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, this image then of him standing over the city with a sword is important because really it's a picture of him ready to go to war. It's a picture of him ready to execute judgment. This is obvious in chapter 19 and verse 15 where the sword is used again and it's Jesus who has the sword. Listen to these words. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So again, the sword is a picture of God's judgment. And no doubt, because we're going to learn here, that the church and Pergamum have been loyal in one way, but compromised in another. And so he wants to remind them of... <laughs> I don't mess around with what you're compromising in. It'll be a word to us as well. So let's look at the commendation in verse uh, 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the praise here is very obvious. It's similar to that of Smyrna these Christians, these believers in Pergamum, in the midst of an extremely pagan city that was loyal to the emperor and antagonistic towards Christians, um, had not shrunk back in their loyalty to Christ. They had not shrunken back. They, in fact, he says there, you have held fast my name and you've not denied the faith, the gospel message. Now, this is remarkable um, when you consider uh, this on a couple different fronts. Number one, Someone in their congregation had already lost their life. This guy named Antipas, and he says, he was killed among you, and he was my faithful witness. So it's one thing to be threatened with, with uh, death and martyrdom. It's one thing to have it occur in your midst and still stand strong. Well, these believers in the days of Antipas, when they lost one of their own, didn't shrink back in denying Christ's name and, didn't, and were continuing to do so in that city, knowing one of their own had lost their lives. So that's an incredible testimony to their, their their commitments to Christ. But I think back to this whole thing about Satan's throne and Satan's dwelling. It's really important too in terms of the spiritual atmosphere they live in. They're living in a satanic satanic culture, and they're still able to withstand the daily pressures in terms of um, what it requires to live as a believer back then. So. That's listed out to me in a couple of different ways. First of all, Jesus says, I know what's going on. I know where you live. May this be an encouragement to us because He knows, therefore, the challenges that you and I face. He knows where you're being challenged in your loyalty to Christ. He knows if there's issues at work, He knows if there's issues in your family. He knows, is there there issues if you're going to school and you're in college or university and you know the pressures of the the classroom setting and the teacher's environment? He knows all of it. And so the call of encouragement to us, he knows what's going on and he wants us to be like antipas in terms of our faithful witness. The second, though, was really fascinating to me is that his comment about where he knew where Satan actually had dominion, where he was king and where he had authority, He knew the spiritual atmosphere of the city. And of the seven churches, this is the only one that's given this title. So it got me thinking. It got me really thinking about everything in light of our our prayer ministry and what we're trying to accomplish in the community. What would Jesus say? What would Jesus say? Or I know he knows the answer. We don't. But if I were to ask him or you would ask him, Lord, where is Satan have his throne in Alberta? Where does Satan actually dwell in Alberta? What city would he choose? What town would he pick? Let's make it smaller. Lord, where in Okotoks? Where in Okotoks? The north, the south, the east, and the west? Where, where does Satan have dominion in our community? Where is his ultimate authority being expressed from? Right, it's really, really fascinating because again, whatever whatever's going on in Pergamum, he recognizes the spiritual authorities in that community or in that city, and he's saying, "I'm fully aware of the spiritual oppression in that in there, but I'm proud of you that you have stood loyal to me." So may that be said of us as uh, uh, you know, as we through our prayer ministries are going and our ministry in the streets are going to find out. A lot more about what's going on probably in Okotoks than we originally know right now. So even though they've been loyal in one way, they'd compromise in another. So we pick this up in verse 14. I have a few things against you because you have been, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The concern in Pergamum is that they had failed to do what Ephesus had done so well. Do you remember in verse, chapter 2, verse 6, in terms of Ephesus, what he said? He says, basically, I'm proud of you because you hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Ephesus, good on you, you hated it. Here in Pergamum, he says, "You, I have these things against you, that you have held to the teaching of them." So again, remember, this is a public letter that's going to go around to everybody. Everyone's going to get to hear this. So while people are celebrating what Ephesus did, uh, Pergamum is going to look embarrassed as they, as their spiritual report card is read to the other seven churches to find out where they're at, and they had failed. They'd compromised in this teaching and adhered to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know anything about the Nicolaitans, but it's compared to that of Balaam. He says, I have a few things against you because you have there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So we need to look at Balaam to figure this out. And if you'd like to put numbers and notes in your Bible, you'll want to write down numbers 22 through 25, and especially chapter 31, verse 16. 3116 so let me give you the Cole's notes version so we don't read it'll take us an hour to basically read all that stuff in numbers so let's uh, let's go give you the Coles notes version. Balaam is introduced to us when Israel is about to enter the promised land and and receive what God promised and so Israel's crushing their enemies like nation after nation king after king falling 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 and next on the list is Moab this king of uh, which is has the king of Balak. And so Balak recognizes that like they're toast in Israel 's uh, p- presence, and so he hires a prophet by the name of Balaam, and Balaam, he wants him to curse Israel. So Balaam tries three times to curse Israel on behalf of Balak and can never do it. Whenever he opens his mouth, he ends up blessing Israel, and it frustrates the daylights out of Balak. Now Balak is mad now because he's out money. <laughs> And he hasn't achieved his purposes, and he still stands in danger of Israel. So, But Balaam is clever, and he suggests another strategy to stop the threat of Israel. And he suggests that the, to the king that you get your Moabite women, you know, get your Moabite women to go and seduce Israel and lure them into the worshipping of Baal, their, their god. And by doing so, you'll basically dilute the threat and make peace between the nations. Well, we learn in in Numbers 25, they did so. And the key aspects of that ball worship were, in verse 14 here, that they ate meat sacrificed to idols and committed acts of immorality. And so we know this in the Greco-Roman culture and even in the, uh, the Canaanite culture that sexual immorality and idol worship went hand in hand. They were synonymous with one another. And so this is what Balaam, did to the sons of Israel, and this is what the Nicolaitans were doing, therefore, in terms of their teaching to the Christians in Pergamum, saying, it's okay to be a believer and participate in the idolatry of the culture. You are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and you're free to associate uh, in the immorality department in that idol worship. And so all these things, church, would have occurred in the temple. This, This all occurs in the temple. And this is where these things uh, would often occur. Now, basically, if I were to use one word, it was the Nicolaitan teaching was this. You can be syncretistic. You can be syncretistic, meaning you can merge different spiritual beliefs together and be okay with God. So, like, you're allowed to... Uh, be a Christian, and also commit idolatry in the Roman Empire. You're allowed to be a follower of Jesus and Okotoks, and also, like, practice Buddhism. Or you're allowed to be, you know, you're allowed to, you know, um, play around with crystals, and also follow Jesus Christ. And this is what the Nicolaitan teaching was kind of saying. But Jesus says, you might think that's okay, but not on my watch. I got a sword and I'm coming after you. Now, it's important to notice the distinction between the two groups here, though, because not there was kind of two things going on in the church in Pergamum. There were some who had embraced it fully and others who hadn't but were standing by and watching. Did you notice that in verse 14? I have a few things against you, the church in Pergamum, because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. So Genesis House, I have something, Jesus has something against us because some of us have adopted a heretical teaching. But not everybody. But there's a problem. Some are standing by and watching this going on and turning a blind eye. And some are fully embraced. But Jesus isn't happy with either one of them. So the question is, how did this happen? How does this happen? Especially in light of the Jerusalem Council that happened 40 years earlier. Now, if you're not familiar with the Jerusalem Council, you can find it in Acts 15. So here, it's the first council that ever happened in the Bible, the most important one. Because the question was this, what must a person do to be saved? What what was the requirement for someone to inherit eternal life and be good with God? And so everyone knew that it was receiving salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But the debate was, where does the Mosaic law fit into that belief? Do I have to be circumcised to be part of the covenant people of God? And do I have to obey the law, like the food laws, the Sabbath, and et cetera, et cetera? And so they have a council. And Peter stands up and says, why would you put on the Gentile Christians a yoke that even the, the my our forefathers, our Jewish people, could not bear. In other words, the law is impossible to ever obey 100%. You just won't do it. He says, therefore, it's by faith in Christ alone that you receive eternal life. And the congregation goes crazy. But, a big but, <laughs> um, they understand there's going to be Jewish-Gentile tensions in the community because that sounds like it's a green light to do anything else you want. And uh, James stands up and he says, we've got one more admonition to you guys. And this is what he says. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, where does this stuff happen in Greco-Roman culture? In the temple. And Ben Witherington once said this, to to, uh, not to me directly, but he told Dan, who, who told me, that Ben Witherington said it this way, this was an issue of venue, not menu. You understand? This is an issue of venue, not menu. Because we know in other places you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul makes that clear. You can do it in certain situations. But where does this stuff happen? Temple feasts. So he says, You're saved by grace, but here's the deal. You are no longer allowed, permitted to go back to the temples and start messing around and worshiping the idols and committing acts of immorality in those temples. That's forbidden as a believer. You will turn, you'll make God jealous if you do that. Fast forward 40 years, and what are the Pergamons doing? acting in in disobedience or ignorance, whatever it may be, to the teachings of the apostles 40 years later at the Jerusalem council. So how does this happen? How does this happen? Well, go back to Balaam. What he could not achieve by cursing, he achieved by subtle influence. Say that again, what he could not achieve by cursing an overt, blatant head-on attack, he achieved by subtle influence, by making the message of the culture attractive to the God's people, bringing it into their midst and saying, "It's okay, you can do this, and you can basically commit these acts, and God doesn't care. You're still good with him. And you know what, Genesis House, that's been one of the biggest churches the church, that we've always had to face. Always. It's the world's influence on the church. And the truth all is, we are all affected by it, the culture, I should say, more than we would ever like to admit. And it's hard not to be. Why? Because we're in the midst of it. You get, up, You go and work in it. You drive in it. You listen to it. You shop in it. You can't get away from it. And it even becomes even more confusing when God's word is reinterpreted to support the culture's values by your spiritual leaders and the Christian community. And it's over time that these subtle influences creep in and slowly dilute your mind, and they quietly undermine God's word, and they cause you to look for the lowest common denominator in terms of what it is to be loyal to Jesus Christ. And this happens because over time, um, you fall, and we become disloyal when the message of the world becomes more powerful than God's Word. When that happens, we're in trouble. And you know what? It saddens me to say this, but there are some churches in the Free Methodist Church of Canada right now, they're in trouble. When I joined this church, or this denomination, eight years ago, they said, we are about holy living. The meetings I've had lately are, are terrifying. I can say for an absolute certainty that I know of a couple of churches out east right now who in our meetings said that gender is fluid. There's no such thing as male and female, quote-unquote, we're all just in sexed bodies. The word of God they used to define this was that in Genesis when God created trees and leaves, or trees, leaves start with one color, but as the seasons change, the leaves change color. And so, because in God's creation, things change color, we are in a fluid body that can change from one thing to another. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, pretty much. I mean, this is, this is just, but this is like, like, this is happening in our denomination right now. It's crazy. Craziness. Craziness. Anyway, I could say, we're not going to talk about that anymore, but you get the point that this is happening. And what's happened, the culture has slowly broken down these pastors and the elders and the teachers in these churches and just slowly chipped away at their heart, and they're redefining God's word because they just feel the cultural pressure to do so. You know, I wonder... I wonder what Jesus would would write in a a letter if he was to address the church in Canada regarding our response as a church to COVID in the last two years. I wonder. I don't know for sure, but I wonder. Let me see if I can explain what I'm talking about. The indiscriminate command that is for the betterment of society and everyone in the Christian community that they should stay away from one another as an act of love and care. The indiscriminate command, meaning I don't care if you're sick or not sick, you cannot be with people, and you cannot gather as a church. That indiscriminate command, what would he say to us in terms of us just saying, okay, we are willing to do this and using the scriptures actually to support our, 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 our movement in the way we handle that. And I say this because, again, like God never, in the midst of disease, contagious disease, ever stopped the feasts and festivals. Ever. He never stopped the feasts and festivals in Israel. Not once. In the midst of leprosy. He quarantined the people who were sick and let the, eight, the people who were not sick freely mingle. Jesus was healing the sick, and the disciples were with him. And when he passed on and, and resurrected, the, the apostle Paul and everyone else, and, and Peter, the guys, were actively healing people in, in the midst of contagious disease. Never shut the church down. I wonder what he would write. And I don't know what he'd write. But have we gone too far and adopted the practice of the culture and just slowly it's just wheedled away at our minds? So again, this happens with subtle influences, but there's more to it than that. Where we give our airtime matters. Where we give our airtime matters. The only way subtle influences can grab your mind is if you are giving that, those influences full amount of time. So if it's six hours in in, in one area in the culture, and one hour in the Word of the Lord, or outside a Christian community, I can tell where the balance is. And the battle for the Christian life in terms of how we live is in the mind. Romans 12, verse 1. Do not be conformed to this world. Be, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can't be transformed if you're living in the culture and just and getting all your cues from it. We have to be careful where we give our air time. And so Jesus made it clear in terms of the Pergamon church with the sexual morality and temple worship uh, that he had a command for them, and we pick it up in verse 16. He said, therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, we see Christ saying, you can't live like this. You have to live in full loyalty to me. Otherwise, I'm coming to you with the sword of my mouth. Again, a picture of judgment. But I want you to notice that the, the, the timing of the judgment. We often think of judgment in terms of eternal life. When we stand before God and he says, you know, you know enter or don't enter heaven kind of thing. But this is not judgment in the future. This is judgment here in this lifetime. I'm coming to you to make judgment here and now. It's, it's imminent. It's happening in this lifetime. Now, the manner in which the judgment is, is um, uh, going to be attributed, we don't know because he doesn't say, but we, does, we do know that he is. But it is interesting that he actually uses the word sword here because a uh, Balak actually lost his life to the sword, <laughs> and the israelites twenty four thousand died that day in mo in the moab uh, plains, and again uh, died by the sword so he's coming to judge he says, but notice too who the judgment's against very interesting back to the the you as a church and them as pe- as a, those who embraced it the issue is not between Jesus and the whole church, but only those advocating the, the, the teaching and who, and who had embraced it. He says, I have this against you, or sorry, let me rephrase that. In verse four, uh, 16, he says, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them. So he clearly has something against those who embrace it versus more so than he does those who are sort of standing uh, passively and watching it going on. But there is a way out. He says, repent. Repent. Now, I've never studied this word repentance, believe it or not. I can't believe I haven't in the eight years of ministry, but I've never actually looked at the word in detail. I just always assume that I know what it means. But you know what was cool? I'm glad I I did the word study. It actually means this, to undergo a change of mind in both principle and practice. It's a change of principle. A change of mind in principle and practice. In other words, repentance and go, it means you think differently and you live differently. What, what, some people hate religion. Why? Because they say, oh, you're such hypocrites because you say one thing and do the other. That's because they define repentance as just by what you think. The biblical definition actually is what you think and how you live, what you practice. And so basically, repentance for these guys is this. You need to no longer take a passive approach to watching this go on in your church. And you need to deal with the people who've embraced it and say, you can't live like this as a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. Now, two lessons before we move on to the final thing that I don't want you to miss on this. Number one, don't miss the heart of Christ. He's coming as a, as a judge. But he's been patient before he's brought judgment. It wasn't the first day they went to the temple that he threatened them. This has been going on for a while, and now he's got a message to them. So again, it speaks of God's grace. Yes, he's uh, going to bring judgment, but look at the heart of Christ. He's, he's slow and patient in bringing this judgment upon the church. But they're not to presume upon it. Not to presume upon it. And he's trying to win them back. He's like, he does, this is really important too. He doesn't say that these people going to temple feasts are not Christians. I know that's hard to believe. He doesn't say you're syncretistic, but you're not a Christian. He says, you are a Christian, but you gotta stop this actions. You gotta stop this behavior. So he's giving them this like this grace period where he recognizes them, I still think you like you're genuinely followers of me. But you can't live this way at the same time. Like, I am coming, so don't mess around because you can't live a, du- double, a double life. This is important for us when we help other people who are wayward in sin in the Christian community. We have to have the heart of Christ and be patient towards them as well. Knowing that we can't just say, well, you're not a Christian, but we can say this. like The Lord doesn't want you to live this way. He's got a better life for you than this, and so we're to patiently try to bring them back. Galatians six one says that, right? Those of you who are spiritual, try to restore somebody who is in the midst of sin, and do it with a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. But number two, I want you to lesson. I want you to pull out of this is that this idea of the word tolerance versus intolerance. Jesus is. Um, clearly not tolerant (laughs) very important in a culture that believes in tolerance but he's intolerant to what's going on so what we learn from christ is this to be a church the church is to be an inclusive community in terms of ethnic identity in terms of gender in terms of social status and how bad no matter how bad your life has been in terms of a life of sin inclusive in all those ways but we're not to be inclusive in all ideas, in all philosophy, in spiritual persuasion. Inclusive of of human being, regardless of background? Absolutely. Inclusive of everyone's ideas, despite their humanity? Not a chance. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth, by definition, is intolerant. Because there's only one truth means everything else is wrong. So Jesus says this then. If you repent, or it's a call to conquer in verse 17. He says, I want you to overcome, church. He who has a nearer, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on it, which no one knows but he who receives it. This, uh, in these analogies of hidden manna and white stones and stuff, um, one is like known for sure and one's ambiguous. Uh, the, the manna, this promise of manna, of course we know where God's going with this, right? Manna was the food supplied to Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. The last day of manna came when they entered Canaan, because now they had all the the fruit and honey and everything else of the land to uh, eat off of. But manna was God's provision to Israel for 40 days in the wilderness. It's a picture of his provisionary care and his fellowship with Israel. So he says to the believer, I'm going to give you hidden manna. That manna is not for now, but if you overcome and stay loyal to me, I will give you this in glory. It's a picture of God's provisionary care and fellowship with him in heaven. But then he also says, I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name on it. Now, we have no biblical, um, no biblical uh, record of anything of white stones that I'm aware of. And so I had to turn to the commentaries for this. And it's not, it's not clear because there's up to nine interpretations of what this could be. So I'm going to give you the top three that I think have validity. Number one, white stones apparently were used by people in juries um, to determine verdicts. If you were guilty, a black stone was given to you. If you were not guilty, you were given a white stone. So if that's the case, it has to do with guilt or not guilt, then it's a picture of being not guilty before God or acquitted of sin. Number two, it was apparently used as admission passes to special events. So for example, an athlete would receive a white stone if they were victorious, and that would gain them entry into an awards banquet, for example. So again, if that's a picture of that, then Jesus is saying, this is an admission pass to heaven. (laughs) Third option, which can have some merit, is that when two friends were about to part ways and not see each other again, they would take a stone that was white put both of their names on it, cut it in two, and and give each other each other's names. So whenever whenever they looked at it, it was an inscription basically to remind them that it was a symbol of lasting friendship. Either way, all of those three things show intimacy and fellowship with God. And so here, in terms of uh, uh, this picture then, we have Jesus saying this, I'm going to give you the promise of fellowship provision, and intimacy with me if you overcome. But We'll finish with a new name because this is kind of cool. By giving someone a new name, I don't think what Jesus was saying here is I'm going to turn your name, Jason, into Alex, right? We're going to up your, up your name or whatever. We're going to change your names here. He's not saying that. The new name has a reference to being identified with Jesus Christ. To be given a new name is to take on the name of Jesus.
1: And I picked this up in chapter
0: 19 and verse 11. In 19 verse 11, let me read this to you. He says this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he, Jesus, who sat on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Then we go to chapter 22 and verse 3, and he says this, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So Jesus in 19 has a name that no one knows and in glory, when when the world is renewed, he puts his name on the foreheads of us. And that's metaphorical. Don't start thinking like you're going to have Jesus' name on your forehead. You're not. That's metaphorical, okay? So this is awesome. He's saying, if you overcome, my name will be written on you. My name. No longer Andrew. No longer Chris. Jesus Christ. All these pictures, these images, would have been a considerable encouragement to a church in the midst of a trying society who now had to deal with compromise. He's basically saying, I'm proud of you for what you've done so far, and I want to encourage you by going my way because the promise of rewards are going to be fantastic for those of you who follow me. So, what do we learn? Number one, there's no room for syncretism when choosing to follow Jesus Christ. You can't blend religions. You can't blend faith. It doesn't work for him. It's only one way. He says, I have this against you. Some of you in there have adhered to the teaching of the Nicolaitans or held to the teaching of Balaam. There's no room for it. However... However, we learn also in, the, in, this, in these uh, verses, and this uh, sermon, that he doesn't see you as being one and done. He's, there's patience involved in Christ. And so lesson number two then is that al- although Jesus extends a period of grace towards syncretistic Christians, the promise of judgment awaits those who refuse to repent. So it's important to say this because he still calls them Christians when they're syncretistic. He's just saying this. I'm, you're only like surviving here because of my grace towards you, but I do want you to change. I do want you to change your mind in terms of thinking and in practice. And so this is his message to us. Number three, I love this. Genuine biblical repentance is to undergo a change of mind in both principle and practice. I thought, why not make it a lesson? Let's define repentance for what it is in the scriptures. This would deal with all hypocrisy in the church, wouldn't it? In terms of why people always lump Christianity into uh, like different religions and people say they hate religions. Because what they're asking is, I just want to see consistency, at least practice what you preach. And I'm like, amen, God thinks the same way as you do. (laughs) I mean, that's what we're, that's what he cares about. Number four, since the subtle influences of our culture can easily draw us away from our loyalty to Christ, where we give our airtime greatly matters. So time and attention, where is it? Listen, I speak as one who knows. In the last two years, when I have gone into my lowest places through this whole, this whole trying time, it's been when I have been out of the word of God, limited in Christian fellowship, and just stuck in the news, stuck in social media, stuck in whatever. It absolutely kills me. I can't do it. Can't do it, because that pervasive, as strong as I think I am in the Lord, as your shepherd and as your pastor, I am not impervious to those messages. My only way to survive is to stick to the Word of God and to know and stick to Christian community. It's my only way to survive. Finally, there are great eternal rewards awaiting those who refuse to tolerate syncretism. A lot said here. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedbacks. And let's have our time of discussion, as usual.